0: Welcome to the Grow Your Practice Podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Chad Madden, owner of Madden Physical Therapy and Breakthrough. Join me each week as we dive into the best practices, systems, principles, tips, and tricks to help you grow your private practice. Hey, everybody, Chad Madden here uh, with the Grow Your Practice Podcast. And today we have, uh, normally I say special guest, I'm going to go with a legendary guest, Steve Mountain is the most prolific consultant in the history of buying and selling uh, private practices. So welcome to the podcast here, Steve.
1: Thank you. And that would be a stretch, I think, but uh, I appreciate your kind
0: words. Uh, (laughs) Is there there another name that is top of mind that would would be in that conversation?
1: I'm sure there are. There's nothing that comes to mind because, of course, I only think about me. So, um, (laughs) Very humble. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I, I'm sure there's other folks that have been uh, very significant in this process.
0: So, just for context, uh, in in the history of your career, um, can you give? I know at one point uh, when we met, maybe five or six years ago, it was roughly 500 million dollars in transactions. You and your firm um, had handled up to that point. It, can you give an idea of uh, to our listeners how many how many deals you've done, or in volume or number? I, Have the faintest idea.
1: Um, I really don't. I mean, we have tried to narrow that number down throughout the years. And uh, what I can tell you is we started back in the late 80s. Um, We have been in the business since then. So we're 30 plus years into it. Um, We did all the when uh, my first deal um, was with a company called Rehab Clinics, which acquired sports physical therapists, which was Pat Croce's business uh, in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, Rehab clinics quickly became NovaCare. Um, NovaCare asked me to come in uh, as an independent consultant and to handle all their mergers and acquisition work as well as their real estate work. So I think when we closed the Croce deal, the sports physical therapist deal, that took rehab clinics to 60 centers. And when my responsibilities were through there, they were at about 1,000. So we, a 1,000 centers. Um, From there, we went to kind of a fledgling startup that was spun out of NovaCare, a company called Benchmark, and we did some work for them. And we took them from zero to probably to 250 centers. So at that point, um, I had felt I had worked for the buyer enough, and I wanted to work for the seller because uh, I feel like we have more in common and I have more in common with the sellers. Uh, I'm not a big corporate guy. I I, I don't, um, I've never been a big fan of lots of meetings and lots of budgets and lots of this and lots of that. So uh, I always felt for me and for our folks here, it was better to work for the sellers than the buyers.
0: Hey, podcast listeners, when we make assumptions about others, it's just not fair. In spite of that, I'm going to make an assumption about you. You have a growth mindset. You want to help more people leave a bigger impact, build a better practice. Am I close? If I'm right, then I have a unique offer that I think you'll be interested in. But first, if you're a regular listener, you probably know that this is brought to you by Breakthrough, the leading platform for private practice growth. Breakthrough's mission is to help people in pain get back to normal, live healthier, and do it naturally. The best way to do this is by empowering private practice owners like you. To grow your business through direct to consumer marketing. If you're a practice owner with a growth mindset, you'd benefit from a risk free consultation with a breakthrough growth expert. Go to getbreakthrough.com forward slash podcast offer to take advantage of this unique opportunity. On that call, you'll learn the key principles of how practice owners are helping more people, creating a bigger impact, and building better businesses with breakthrough systems. As an added bonus, the team at Breakthrough is giving a $50 Amazon gift card to any of the podcast listeners who attend this growth consultation. Sign up for your growth consultation and $50 gift card at getbreakthrough.com forward slash podcast offer. Again, that's getbreakthrough.com forward slash podcast offer. Great. So, um, in, in working for the seller, let's dive into that perspective first. What are, so on this call, the listeners, primarily are going to be private practice owners who someday, whether it's two years away or 20 years away, are going to be exiting their practice. This is their nest egg. They took a a huge risk to go into practice and, um, you know, there is some sort of reward uh, hopefully waiting on the end. Can you talk about when when you work with um, a seller for the first somebody who's looking to sell their practice, what are the some of the things that they should be looking at, looking for? What does that initial conversation sound like?
1: The initial conversation really, we're asking a lot of questions about what do you wanna do and why do you wanna do it? I think the first thing is for the seller to have a mindset and understand the process that they're going to enter into. So a lot of sellers are not even certain they wanna sell and they wanna kind of stick their toe in the pool and figure out what their business is worth um, before they make the commitment. And that is a difficult thing to do. the concept of sticking your toe in the pool and just kind of getting a sense of where it's at. Um, I think, in from where I sit, that is not as easily said as done. There are many variables that go into uh, the psyche of a seller and what they're trying to accomplish and how they're trying to accomplish it. So, my first couple of meetings with a seller is typically, what do you want to do? Why do you want to do it? How do you want to do it? Do you want to stay? Do you want to go? Do you want to stay involved in the? Going forward, do you want to sell 100% of your company? Do you want to sell a minority piece in your company? Who do you want to sell it to? Do you want to sell it to a large consolidator? Do you want to sell it to a local hospital? Do you want to sell it to someone in your community? Do you care about your legacy? Uh, You know, all those things go into the way a deal gets framed. Uh, If you want to keep your name, because you want the legacy in your community because maybe you've been there 30 years and you like to see your shingle out front. Um, that's that's a deal that won't go with everybody because many buyers want their name on the shingle. So something as simple as that or something that to, to an outsider looking in may go, well, what's the big deal? Well, there's some people, as you pointed out, this is one of the major decisions that you'll make in your life. Um, typically, you only get to sell your business once. so you need to be really careful and thoughtful about why you're doing it and what your expectation
0: is. That's great. Uh, nailed some key questions there for people to think through. And Steve, I am guilty as charged with the, uh, the toe in the water. Uh, probably, <laughs> probably have done that, uh, quite a few times where, you know, unsure, what does it look like landing on the other side, some things like that. So that resonated with me a lot. Is, is there something in that initial conversation that you have that, or, for a listener right now, how, how do we know if we're really ready to sell or not?
1: Well, I, I, that's a really good question. Really only you know, or, or that seller knows how ready they are. And if they're really willing to give that practice up, or if they're really willing not to be the boss anymore, assuming you're selling more than 51%, if they're really willing to walk away or if they're willing to sell it, but not walk away and stay involved, uh, which is a tricky thing because you close your deal on Friday and you come to work on Monday and now you're an employee, you're not the boss anymore. So there are some tricks that go on in your brain. Um, and there are some things that maybe are underthought and maybe some things that are way overthought. So, um, how I know is if I spend a decent amount of time with somebody, I get a sense as to. know and i think this is where experience comes in this is where 30 years later i get a pretty good sense of whether or not somebody really is ready to sell their business or not ready to sell their business um we go through a whole checklist of things you know the first thing i want to know has nothing to do with money it has nothing to do with valuation it has everything to do with what do you want what are you trying to accomplish like it's not unusual for me to say to someone like you okay and now we've never met chad so we're talking on the phone And I might say to you, Chad, how old are you? Tell me where your kids are at. Tell me where your wife is at. What is your lifestyle like? When this is done, what do you want to do? When this is, if this closes tomorrow, what do you want to do the day after tomorrow? Do you want to go to the Bahamas? Do you want to stay in your house? Do you want to pay off mortgages? Do you want to pay off your kids' schools? What is it that you want to do? So I spend a lot of time with that. Because first of all, I want to get to know the person that I'm selling or working with towards a sale. The second thing is I want to make sure that I've done a good job for them, and I understand what they what they want um in the end, everybody wants more money than their business is worth. i mean i you know I think innately we're all like that. we all want more um, but I think as you begin to get those answers, you begin to understand and maybe craft um how to educate a seller as to what really they should expect.
0: Very fair. Um, the, I, I, almost started answering your questions as you were, <laughs> you were going through there. Um, <laughs> yeah.
1: I haven't doing that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. So that's great. So from if, okay, let's say, um, hypothetically I'm thinking, you know, in the next five years, um, you know, let's say I'm 55, 60 years old. I'm looking towards the tail end of my career. Kids are through college. Um, by the way, this is not real for me. I thought you were but, in your set. Yes. <laughs> you look- <laughs> uh, yep. Uh, the, so uh, exactly. the So I'm in that situation towards the tail end of my private practice career. I want to start prepping. I want to start thinking through. Um, in addition to the questions you've asked, which I think are very relevant. And in the conversations that I'm having with owners who are thinking about exiting, they often haven't thought of those, you know, thought through answers themselves to those questions. So um, in addition to thinking that it, you know, is it optimistic? Can I, do I really have something of value? How do I go through and think, you know, uh, and I'm going to dive into exactly what you talked about, the biggest uh, misnomer or the expectation that we have just being human is, my practice is really worth on the market 2 million, but I want 5 million. Um, how do I weigh that out? How do, how do you help um, owners work through that? What's realistic, their expectations within the market and what they actually have right now? Well, as
1: you begin to frame the personal side, what you want to do when you're done, and let's do, we'll, we'll, we'll put you in the shoes of the seller. Um, as, as I begin to understand that, you're, well, many of your decisions will affect the valuation of your business. For instance, if you said, I want to sell my business on Friday. I want to sell my business as quickly as possible. I really don't care what you get. I just want out. That obviously would affect the price of your business. It would be less expensive. Um, It would be easier for someone to acquire it than if you said, I want to get every penny out of this and I am prepared to hang in there as long as possible to, to maximize my sale. So that's one for instance. The next for instance would be if you said to me, Steve, when I close this deal on Friday, I wanna be in the Bahamas by Monday. So I'm not hanging around. I'm not gonna help with the transition. I am going to leave. Uh, I'm done with this. I'm 70 years old, I've had enough. I put my 30 years in. My wife and I are going, we're getting on a plane. Um, That's gonna affect your valuation, right? Because the, the buyer is going to say, Well, we're not sure we know how to do this without you and we're not sure that we're willing to pay up or or overpay or be aggressive in the way we look at this deal because we don't think because you're not going to be around to help us make sure it works conversely if you say look not only will i stay i'll contribute some of my proceeds from this deal back into the company and i will invest in the company now you can begin to maximize that deal, you can look at that. So as you're making your personal decisions, we're trying to help you, or I think any any good intermediary you have, any good broker you have, would be working with you based on your conclusions and based on what you wanna do with what the risk and the reward of each of those decisions are. So if you said "May me, I wanna do this, 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 and this, I think our response would be, well, if you do this, this is probably what we're gonna hear. This is probably the way they're gonna position this. Right. Once again, this is where experience, this is where 30 plus years and hundreds and hundreds of deals become significant for for a guy like me, because we probably are not going to you're probably not going to tell us anything that we haven't seen or haven't had to deal with. I I don't know if that answers your question, but hopefully it
0: does. Oh, it's and I love the range, too, of um, how you said, you know, expectations and valuation are closely linked. So if I expect you to sell by Friday and I'm in the, I believe you said the Bahamas um, over the weekend by Monday, that that dramatically affects what's in it for me, what's in it, you know, the valuation right. of the practice. Um, I, when uh, we opened the call and you started talking about representing both the buyer and the seller, I'm wondering uh, if for a second you can flip over to the buyer perspe- the buyer perspective and just what is it that the seller Um, doesn't really think of that is within the buyer's perspective uh, from your experience. So how is the buyer thinking that the seller just isn't even aware of? The buyer thinks
1: in a couple of different ways, and it often depends on who the buyer is. If the buyer is a large corporation, if the buyer is a large consolidator, um, chances are they're going to look at your business through the eyes of many people, right? There's going to be a committee. And some people on that committee are going to be very biased and they're going to want to buy your business because they want to be, you know, they want those dots on the map. They want that community you're in. And they really think that having your practice will improve their overall scope of business. However, on the same committee, there are third-party people that will get involved in due diligence and think of them as home appraisers. Right. So if you put your home on the market and it's worth a million dollars and somebody offers you one point five million subject to an appraisal, the appraisers are going to come out. And if they say that house is worth seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, we're not going to fund it to the tune of one point five million. Then you got a problem because because that deal can still go down. That deal can still happen at one point five million. But that means the buyer is going to have to come up with more cash. Because the person that's putting money in that deal is not going to put money in that deal. They're not going to fund it. So when you're dealing with a buyer, you need to understand that there are third-party people involved in this that have no biases. Their job is to come out and to be independent. Uh, Usually it's an independent accounting firm that does a quality of earnings report. And they're going to come out and they're going to analyze your business. And from where I sit, I believe they don't care if the deal does or does not happen. I don't think that's in their scope. I think their scope is to say, we looked at all your numbers. We've gone back three to five years. We know exactly what your p l looks like. We know exactly what your balance sheet looks like. We know exactly what your schedules look like, your payrolls, et cetera. And we don't think this business is worth what you're offering. Then it comes down to really whether or not you can keep that deal together. So I think the the seller has to understand that it regardless of what they want if it doesn't hold up in due diligence the deal's probably either not going to close or it's going to have to be reorganized or recut meaning less money. The,
0: is is there an example of a a pitfall in the quality of earnings and I, I I just want to make sure I understand this right for myself so that it would be like uh Let's say I had a single site PT practice and I also owned the real estate um, within the same building. And I I did something ridiculous that was outside of the realm of fair market value with leasing the space. So I either had it super low or I had it super high. And that, uh, let's say, um, changed my earnings significantly one way or the other. Would that be an example of something that would show up on the quality of earnings report that would get me in trouble?
1: All those things. Well, it may not get you in trouble. It, it may be flagged. Sure. They say you're charging yourself $5 a foot when you're in a $20 market or you're charging $40 a foot when you're in a $20 market. And either way, it's a plus or minus to the deal. Um, we, we actually call that, that there, there is when you work with someone, when someone comes in or you yourself, you can reorganize your business so it looks... The way the buyer would have it look. Mm-hmm. And that's called normalization. So you can take out your one-time events and you can take out those types of situations that are unusual and you can either get a debit or a credit for that. So uh, the, the problem is when you send your initial package to the buyer, you'll send out some type of summary of what your business is. When you send that out, that becomes the first stake in the ground as to what you're selling. So if you sell something that says you're charging $5 a foot for rent in a $20 market, because it's your building, you own the building and you can do as you please. Well, now when you go, now, as you get closer to closing, as you get closer to making that deal, you want $25 a foot. Don't be surprised if the buyer says, wait a minute, You said rent was $5, if it was $5 for you, why shouldn't it be $5 for us? Those things probably need to be picked up prior to you going to your potential buyers. All those types of situations need to be found and discovered and communicated and talked about before you get out there. Now, sometimes they get out there by mistake and you have to clean up the mess later on, and that's what due diligence is for. Due diligence is, to, is due diligence should be confirmatory. It's not always confirmatory. Mm-hmm.
0: When when you talked about uh, normalization uh, in commercial real estate, they call that uh, they call the um, misnomer or the outlier. They call that a flea, and that's mm-hmm. what I thought you were you were going right. to say. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I get the concept. That makes a lot of sense. Um, are there, uh, any other pitfalls from the seller, any other major pitfalls you see from the seller's perspective, um, as they're going through and, you know, when they're choosing, how am I going to exit here? Like you said, the, the local buyer or the huge conglomerate, um, are there any other major errors that, that people are making that you're helping people through? um, when you get into due diligence, I think you want to,
1: I think you want to go out there knowing that you've put your best foot forward. So I think there are things that probably a seller should do to get ready to go to the market properly. So if, if we're in, we're in November now, so we're, we're towards the end of the month. So it gets to be the end, the last day of the month. And now you have to close your November books. Well, if you can't close them for 90, 120, 150 days, that will be a problem in due diligence because the buyer is going to want to see your current revenue runs and they're going to want to see your schedules and they're going to want to see your payrolls and they want to bring them as close to the closing date as they possibly can. So if you know your back of the house, if you know your administration, if you know your accounting, if they—if it's slow, if it lags, if it's not consistent, if you've been playing games, and playing games is maybe not the right phrasing, but if you manipulate your money in a way that it suits you as an owner, but it's not consistent with the way a normal business is run, those kinds of things need to be organized so that you can present your business correctly so the buyer understands it. If the buyer doesn't understand your business they're going to ask you fifty thousand more questions than if they understand it right so one of the things we try to do one of the things that i'm always working on with a buyer and with a seller is how consistent can we be and what is what's the veracity of these numbers um you know one of the first things we'll talk about in the call once we get past the personal stuff is we'll start talking about what's your revenue and the owner will say, oh, it's about 2 million bucks. Well, we'll find out 30 days later that 2 million is really 1.3 million. Well, that's a big difference. That's $700,000. And when they told me it was 2 million, there's they have an expectation and I have an expectation as to what $2 million of revenue should be worth. Well, if you find out it's a million three, that doesn't mean somebody lied to me. It doesn't mean somebody that made that number up. Maybe they just didn't understand that. Maybe they built 2 million and collected 1.3 million in cash, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got to understand your business. You've got to be able to present it consistently and you've got to be on time. I think they're, they're the biggest mistakes that that sellers make is they're, they, they're not on time and their numbers are not consistent. You can't tell me your payroll is... and then you find out it's $3,000 or vice versa, right, right, because there's nothing consistent about that. You know, if you see a lot of transiency in your workforce, you're going to have a hard time convincing the buyer that you've got a settled in predictable practice, Mm -hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So eliminating those things and creating a very consistent, easy to understand business should be the goal of the seller prior to going out to the market.
0: Got it. There's a, there was a conversation you and I had in the past, I believe it was on uh, one of our summits, one of our events, and you said something along the lines of um, the basically the simplicity. There's value in sim- simplicity that if, if a buyer, and I'm also running through all these uh, Charlie Unger and Warren Buffett conversations where they talk about buying a business um, it has to be simple and easy to understand and that is more valuable to them. Um, and we were talking about, uh, there was something else in there complex. And we were talking maybe about uh, like multiple partners with inside and a lot of untangling that has to happen. Is that essentially what you're saying here? Where um, if, if I have a complex business and I'm running my kid's tuition and my car payment and all this other stuff through the business, I have to untangle that first. So it's more simple for the buyer. I don't think you have to untangle that, but I think you have to be able to explain
1: that very easily. And you have to be able to pull that out of your normal, ordinary P&L, so, right? Very simply, you don't wanna find that out after the fact. Um, simplicity in a deal or cost certainty in a deal, um, and buyers want cost certainty. They wanna know, I find that buyers are very willing to overpay when they understand something and when they know they're overpaying. I think if you try to get them to overpay and they don't understand the business, I think then you're going to run into problems with getting your deal to close. So I don't think in this day and age, you can quote, pull the wool over anybody's eyes. I think that the due diligence has become so sophisticated and so uh, the nuance of it and the fact that third parties are brought in for everything from compliance to HR, to the quality of earnings, to the legal, they're bringing experts in for everything. It's no different than what a physical therapist is taught every day, that you have an ankle guy, and a wrist guy, and a knee guy, and a back guy, you have experts, right? Well, the same thing happens in due diligence. There's a bunch of experts that come in that will scrub your business. So if you were selling your house, um, and you had time, and you had the wherewithal, you would declutter your house you would paint your house you would fix the leak in the basement you would do some things to get your house ready for a sale so you can answer all those questions properly if you don't do any of those things those questions get asked and there's no answers or the answers are maybe aren't consistent with what the owner told the buyer on day one and then all of a sudden you have a problem so i think when you look at your business if if you're in a, in a position to do it, if you have the time and the wherewithal to do it, I think getting your your business ready is invaluable. And I think it not only does it help you get a better deal, it helps your deal to close.
0: Makes a lot of sense. This podcast is brought to you by Breakthrough, the leading platform for practice growth. Breakthrough has helped over 1,500 healthcare practice owners leave a bigger impact in their communities and grow a larger business. As the founder of Breakthrough, I've developed a library of educational resources on practice growth. These are based on my learnings from my own experience as a private practice owner, plus the experience working with thousands of other owners in the Breakthrough community. If you have a growth mindset and you're hungry for free resources to help you grow, check out Breakthrough's resource hub. Go to getbreakthrough.com forward slash resources, where you'll find on-demand trainings, tools, templates, planning guides, and a host of other free resources. Again, you can find these at getbreakthrough.com forward slash resources. If you're interested in getting direct support with your practice growth, you can request a free growth consultation at getbreakthrough.com forward slash podcast offer. Wow, a lot of different places. Let
1: me get in that last point. You also said this concept of how complicated partnerships, making it simple, the Warren Buffett concept. I do believe that the simpler something is, the easier it is to get consensus on how to move forward. If you have multiple partners, right? If you have, and it's not unusual for me to call an owner and say, well, I've got three partners. And then you find out that really they have three partners plus three different accountants or four different accountants, plus four attorneys, plus four significant others, right? All of a sudden, that's a really big committee. That, that is a, and it's in, in order to build consensus, there's a lot of meetings that need to take place. You know what I mean? Now, if you turned around to me and said, I've got three partners, three accountants, three lawyers, and three significant others besides myself, but I can, I can organize this in a way that I can answer for everyone, right? That deal is much simpler to explain to the buyer. And then when a buyer makes an op- creates an opportunity or makes an offer or wants to do it a certain way, we don't have to run that by a dozen people because that person has power of attorney to speak on behalf of that big complicated group. If your group is complicated, it's gonna be a little bit harder to build that consensus and to be able to do things quickly and to get the, um, the solidarity that comes with something being able to being definitive.
0: Makes a ton of sense. The, the so right now um, w- within the marketplace, what types of deals are you, it, w- what type of deal flow are you seeing, Steve? I know. Um, and just as a point of reference, when we were talking, I believe it was about a year ago, um, the market was starting to, Uh, pick back up again to some degree. And what buyers were doing is they were willing to look at the trailing 12 months prior to the pandemic. Um, Just curious as to what you're seeing in the marketplace today with deal flow.
1: I I believe it's still a good market. And I believe there's plenty of buyers out there. But I think the buyers are a bit more selective now. Uh, There's less and less big private opportunities. Most of the big private opportunities um, have been picked over a bit. So I think you're seeing smaller situations and you're seeing consolidators coming in and you either fit what they're doing or you don't. If you fit, you've got a chance to make a really nice deal. The, the, the pandemic has caused people to say, we'll ignore the pandemic we'll go back and we'll evaluate, evaluate your business as if it were 2019. That's not really what we're seeing. That's what we're hearing. That's what we're being, that's what's being indicated to us. But, what, but realistically what has happened is if you go back to 20, if you go back to the pandemic, if you go back to 2020 and you closed down for two or three or four months, and then when you reopened, you were not back to 100% quickly. So maybe you reopened part-time, maybe you closed full-time and did some telehealth. And then when you reopened, you were doing a percentage of 100% and then a better percentage of 100%, et cetera. Um, And the buyers oftentimes will say, well, that pandemic was in March, April, and May of last year. So now we're a year outside of that, right? So we'll go back one year. We'll, We'll go back and look at your business for the past year, which takes us from November to November, right? But the problem is November to November does a couple things. There's usually some seasonality in businesses. There's usually holiday seasons, Thanksgiving, Christmas, et cetera. There's usually weather patterns that can affect your business. And on top of that, you've got a pandemic. So there is a pretty good chance that even though you're back to normal right now in November of 21, you were not back to normal in November of 20. So if you use 12 months as a trailing 12, that might not represent what your business really is. You might have been at 72% of 100% in November of 2020, right? Now you're at 100% of 19. They're going to look at the trailing 12 and they're going to say, "Mm, you're blended, you're at 76%. So we can't give you a 100% deal. We can only give you a 76% deal. And that means you're multiple slides, by the way. So instead of giving you six times, we're going to give you 5.2 times. So what happens is you, you, you might be getting punished not once, but twice. So those things, and hopefully I'm not getting over your head here. or not going, I, I'm talking fast, but I'm, I'm hoping you're understanding what I'm saying. I think, I think when you value a business today, I think what you should be trying to explain to the buyer and make them understand in the simplest way possible because that's what they will understand. Remember, they have to go back to all their committees too. They've got committees. You have to say to them, this is what my business is, right? My business is not a moment. My business is 20 years of my labor. I built this thing to be a $1 million business. It's not an $800,000 business. Right now, it looks like an $800,000 business, but if you really look at the history of my business, you'll see it's a million dollar business you have to be able to demonstrate that. You have to be able to prove that. Then you have a chance of holding your deal up the way you would like. If you can't do that, you're selling your business in that moment. You know, and that moment can work both ways. I mean, if you have a huge year, you know, maybe I, I know that for instance, we do urgent care work. Many of the urgent care centers that we see had bang up years. They had huge years because of because of the pandemic. Well. You know, and I I can think of one particular person that we work with that probably did three times the revenue they normally did. Well, they want to sell it based on three times the revenue. Guess what? The buyers are saying, well, that's not really what your business is. Your business is really one time, right? It's not three times what you did. That's really what it is. That's normally how it works in a sale. The, the, The folks you're dealing with, are big, they're strong, they're sophisticated. They have a lot of help. They have a lot of attorneys. They have a lot of accountants. They have a lot of experience. There's not much you're going to say to them that they haven't seen, right? So that's what you're competing with. You're competing with trying to figure out how do I put my best foot forward and prove to these folks that I'm a good partner for them and that they need to buy my business for what it is, not for what it is over the long haul, not what it is for the moment.
0: Great. The you mentioned urgent care. What other um... So physical therapy, urgent care, any other um, healthcare professionals you're working with?
1: Oh, yeah. We've done stuff in dermatology. We've done stuff in pediatric therapy. We've done pretty much if it's a service-based business, you know, we'll take a look at it. And if we can help, we'll we'll try to help.
0: Wonderful. Um, And with the, I have a few more questions here for you, Steve, but for an owner who's considering selling um, and wants representation, what's the best way for them to contact you?
1: Um, I would. Say, well, I'm old school, so I'd say pick up the phone and call me. But um, Great. Uh, if you look to M T Consulting, um, our website, and just any type of contact, you know, just pick up the phone and call us, send us an email, send us a text. It doesn't matter, you know, if, if uh, we're easy to find. Um, that 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 would be the simplest thing.
0: Yeah. So we'll put the link for M T Consulting in the show notes here, and also uh, the phone number. Just use the main phone number on the site.
1: And we'll answer the phone, or Chris will answer the phone, and we will be back to you within the day.
0: Great. Um, great. So uh, you mentioned cost certainty. Uh, I have a question on uh, return on capital only because I've seen this play out. And I'll selfishly use my own example. Um, and I'm, my guess is from the seller's and buyer's perspective, there is a range of how to think about this. But we opened uh, two clinics in the middle of the pandemic well, literally right before. So January 27th and March 9th um, of 2020. The, the I, Obviously, it was pretty ravaging <laughs> to have two de novos um, fully staffed and then uh, basically Central Pennsylvania um, was shut down or nearly shut down. So um, they, those clinics now, luckily, they're doing fantastic, but they do not have a full year Run rate, and by fantastic, I mean both clinics have five clinicians, um, and we're up over two hundred visits a week in each. So they went from zero to two hundred plus. How should a seller represent, and how should a buyer think through representing that return on capital? Because I've heard everything from a, uh, a, a an earnings figure that can be extrapolated from past de novos translate it out. So that's one end, which is very favorable to the seller. Um, and I've also heard, you know, basically the cost of the clinic. So, uh, you know, if it's $150,000 to open the clinic, then there is, that's the consideration, especially if that clinic is not at a break-even point yet and has no history of earnings. So what have you seen in terms of that and how should a, buy, how should a seller be thinking through the value of that de novo? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. It's a good question. Uh, And it's a, it it can be a dilemma. I I would not sell it on the cost of the startup. I would not sell it based on, we put $162,000 in. So that's the cost basis for the center. What I would do in your case, you've got a couple of centers that are now, you know, up and going and, and maybe not fully ramped up, but ramped up to the extent that they're Cash flow positive, et cetera, et etc. I would build that performat in a realistic way, and I would tell them, if you want to buy this business, you're going to have to buy it off the performat. There's enough history here to show what this business is. My whole thing is, particularly in the new world, like today, is proving to the buyer what your business really is. The, the whole effort for a good broker is to present what you are and maximize what you are correctly. I don't think you can lie to a buyer. I don't think you should try to inflate the value past the point of you gotta pay up. I mean, you know, if you buy a certain brand of car, it's more expensive than another brand of car. And people are willing to do that. I mean, that's why people buy exotic cars and they don't, you know what I mean? And some people buy compact cars because they're they're less expensive. So I think it's the same thing. If you have a premium business, and you're selling it as a premium business, you're entitled to a premium price. I think that when you sell your business once, you should all be thinking about a premium price. So I think what you have to do is find a way to present your business in its highest and best way. Like on the best day of the week, what's that, you know, what is that business, right? If you're coming out of a pandemic, if you got a 25 year business and you've had one pandemic in 25 years, it's pretty clear to me, you don't want to sell your business in the middle of a pandemic. That doesn't make sense. Um, But sometimes you have to sell your business in the middle of a pandemic, or you need to, or you want to. So you've got to make soup out of that. Um, I think the best way to do that is just make an argument that this is really what my business is. Um, You know, if I had a 20 year business that was doing $5 million a year, and in the pandemic year, it went to $4 million. I wouldn't sell it for 4 million. I'd say this is a $5 million business. That's what it is. And when we do $5 million, this is the type of profit we make. And when we make this type of profit, we feel we're entitled to this multiple. That's how I would do it.
0: Makes sense. Um, the, and just as a point of reference for everybody, if you're not familiar with the pro forma, it's essentially a one year, three year, or five year financial projection of uh, income and expenses, or if you're a CPA, revenue and costs. Is that fair, Steve?
1: Yeah, that's that's fine. Yep.
0: Great. Um, So I I just wanted to, um, as a point of reference, go to um, the website and get your phone number. So we have it in here. If somebody can't access the show notes, it's uh, uh, mtbizbrokers.com. Biz is B-I-Z. So M-T-B-I-Z. Uh, brokers.com. The phone number is 610-527-8400. And you said uh, Dana or Chris will answer, right? Correct. Great. Um, So the, and I I, I want to, um, for owners that are thinking about this, um, and only because I've been through the process myself, I've talked with other owners that are going through the process. um, And, you know, it's time to get our our house in order, you'd mentioned, you know, fixing the leak in the basement, et cetera. Um, Other than a call, or is that the best place to start to get an inventory of where we're at? What's the first step that we should be doing if we're considering it on the horizon?
1: Your first step is maybe looking in the mirror and figuring out how how organized you are and whether you feel you need outside help. Um, I recommend to most everyone short of a a single shop, a small, a very small mom and pop where basically you do all the work yourselves. And that's what you have. Short of that, if you have any kind of size or multiple clinics, and, you know, you have, you have a staff of employees that have been with you for some time, I would highly recommend you find a professional to help you at the minimum guide your deal. Um, At the maximum, hire a broker don't have to be me don't have to be us it can be anybody that's proficient anybody who's good at this but i think you will do better if i think you'll do better economically i also think they'll take a lot of pressure off of you because they know what the buyer wants they know what the buyer will tolerate they know what due diligence really looks like i can't impress upon you folks enough how difficult due diligence is, particularly coming out of a pandemic. Um, Buyers, particularly consolidators, the bigger guys, they want a strong deal for themselves. Their job, it's no different than your job as the seller. Your job as a seller is to maximize your value. Their job as a buyer is to minimize the cost of that deal. But more importantly, because I do think that people are willing to overpay, They're only willing to overpay when they really understand it and when they really feel like the seller is buying in to the going forward process. So a broker can help you better with that. They can help you better understand what that process is and due diligence. They can help you better understand the way a consolidator thinks. They can help you better understand how you get to value, like what matters to the buyer what actually moves the needle in terms of money, right? When will they say yes? When will they say no? Do you know what I mean? Can you get every, you know, I mean, I've had deals where the owners a week before the deal, they want to give everybody on their staff a $20,000 raise. Well, that good chance that's going to blow the deal. (laughs) Uh, And I actually had someone call me and say, well, they did that and they blew the deal. And now could we help them now? Had we been involved in that, we would have said, well, if you do that, you're going to blow your deal, right? So something as simple as that, that seems like common sense to some folks, they don't see the obvious, or maybe they don't think of that as uh, maybe material. They they think of that as insignificant, but to a buyer that wants cost certainty, that is material. That's important. Um, They're going to talk a lot to the seller about what going forward looks like. Are you going to be able to tolerate wearing, uh, we wear red shirts, so you're going to be able to wear a red shirt. You know, We want you here from nine to five. You're not used to being at the business from nine to five. You're used to coming and going as you please. Can you do that? The way you answer those questions, the way you bring this forward may determine whether you get paid aggressively or less than aggressively, and it may determine whether or not your deal goes or doesn't go.
0: Very fair. The, and just to back you up on the uh, probably the most remarkable thing of any owner I've ever talked with who has gone through uh, a, a transition, a, a selling process. And I asked them about what was the biggest, like from when you started the selling process to the time you signed, what, like what surprised you the most? It was the due diligence pressure. And I heard, I've heard between 10 and hundred times more pressure on me, the seller, than what I and work than what I uh, uh, initially expected and in every one of those cases they did not have somebody representing them a, a, a broker um, a, a good broker becomes a buffer a good broker becomes an
1: organizer a good buffer a, a good broker becomes someone who backs them down and helps them get organized because remember if they bring in a quality of earnings team and then they have the consolidator who they have their they have their COO and their CEO and their, and their regional manager and their general manager and their local manager, if all those people get involved in due diligence and they will, plus the quality of earnings, plus maybe a bank or private equity firm brings their team in, all of a sudden you got a lot of people asking the exact same question every day. And it can get really kind of mind numbing and it can really put pressure on it. And I'm gonna remind you while all this is happening, you have to run your business every day. Yeah. So, you know, when we're in the middle of a due diligence on a good sized business, we, we've got two going on now with big practices, large practices. And I feel terrible for our owners because they don't want their staff to know, which is fair. You know, you, you wanna protect the confidentiality of the deal and they wanna make sure they have a deal before they bring it to their folks. They're doing everything and they're running their business. So, having a good broker can maybe temper um, the asks, can temper the pace, can really push back a little bit when they feel that folks are making it too aggressive or too personal. I mean, sometimes due diligence, this is the biggest thing I see, uh, the bedside manner that can happen in due diligence is oftentimes really bad. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes you're an owner you You put your business together the best to the best of your ability, and you do things certain ways, so you know you turn the lights on with your left hand and the industry turns the lights on with their right hand well in due diligence, something like that can come across as we're attacking your business you're not doing it right that's not the way we do it and you know that you you you've been through that as an owner you've been through that as a boss where an employee comes. That's not the way we do it. We do it this way. Well, if you're not careful, due diligence can can be very, very personal. It can be really painful. It can be really. It can be a very difficult process. So it brings us back to what we talked about earlier. The simpler you make it, the cleaner you make it, the more identifiable it is, and the simpler it is to understand, the less chance of it becoming personal. The less chance of it becoming you know i've had people say your payroll's all fouled up right well you probably could have avoided that do you know i mean there probably was a way to understand it was fouled up because it's probably been fouled up for a little bit right mm-hmm. it, I, I don't think it got fouled up yesterday you know it's been fouled up for you know what i mean and i don't think the issue is it's fouled up i think the issue is this is how we do it we do it a certain way you view that as fouled up we don't think it's fouled up we think that's the way we do it how would you like to do it if you wanna do it a different way, we're, we're open to that. That keeps your deal going. Fighting mm-hmm. with them keep your deal going.
0: Yep, makes a lot of sense. Steve Mountain, we have covered a ton of ground from uh, cost certainty, which was probably my biggest takeaway here. Uh, you talked about the quality of earnings report, uh, the normalization, lots of nuggets in here for owners. Uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, um, also, for bringing years of wisdom, decades of wisdom uh, to this. I know, uh, and you were very humble in the beginning, but I'll, I'll still use the terms legendary and uh, most prolific uh, when I'm introducing you. So thank you for being here. Well, thank you. Do you have any other questions Is there anything? I, I don't have any other questions, but I am gonna stop the recording and then uh, so you okay. and I can talk. <laughs> okay, great, got it. Thanks everybody. Remember to visit GetBreakthrough.com to access our free resource library designed specifically for private practice growth. While you're there, make sure you register for a complimentary growth assessment to learn about potential opportunities for growth in your local market. Again, thank you for tuning into the Grow Your Practice podcast and supporting our mission to help people in pain get back to normal naturally.